Hello, my name is Ran and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with amazing teachers about yoga, movement, meditation and all sorts of things that we love to share with the world. I hope you're having an absolutely wonderful day. I'm doing very well, thank you very much, though it is getting freezing here in Melbourne. I'm recording this on June the 21st, which just happens to be International Yoga Day. So happy International Yoga Day to you. Though to be fair, you probably won't hear this episode until at least a few days later. So our guest today is Amy Bell. Amy is a coach, NLP trainer and facilitator and all around wonderful person. We talk with her all about meditation, NLP, art and technology and how these four things can collide together in a wonderful and productive way. It's a great fun conversation so I can't wait to share it with you. Now before we start with the episode though, I just wanted to let you know about a very special event coming up soon. On Saturday the 27th of July, it will have been one year since we opened our new studio, Garden of Yoga, and it's gone so quickly. Now to celebrate, we'll be running free yoga and aerial yoga classes all morning and there will be vegan treats yum we really hope we'll see you there so check out our show notes for this episode at podcast.flowartist.com and if you haven't already please come and join our facebook group the flow artist podcast community we'd really love to hear your feedback and just get the conversation started so come and join us all right that's more than enough talking from me let's get on to our interview with amy bell Excellent. So perhaps you could uh, just start by telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I grew up in Sydney. I grew up in a beautiful part of Sydney with the Royal National Park. Uh, So that was like my backyard. We had a creek running through the backyard. We had lots of wildlife, wallabies, Uh, beautiful family, very creative family. My dad's like an old muso. Uh, my brother's super artistic. Uh, my mum's like pretty artistic as well. My sister is super, super switched on. And so like beautiful kind of family environment. And I was sort of this super creative, curious kid, I suppose, and always wanted to be an artist, a writer or a teacher from a really young age and brief very briefly an architect but that didn't last long on my dream list because you had to be like had to stay inside the lines a little bit too much and I was a little bit too kind of outside that space so that didn't last long I guess you can't be too creative when you're building a building like there's some laws of gravity and structural engineering exactly not really my thing the whole like being precise and measuring things just kind of wasn't a good fit But I was really interested in like surrealism and unconscious minds. I was really interested in Dali and Rene Marguerite as artists and dreams and the things that we can't really see, like our thoughts, our feelings, our beliefs. I was really kind of people oriented. I think when we first got the internet back then, so I probably would have been early teens. So it wasn't Google yet. It was, Mm. I don't know what it was, but you could look stuff up and it was exciting. And I think the first thing that I looked up was I researched all the different religions that I could think of and that I could find just to step inside other people's worlds and, and find out what they believed and what was important to them and what was common among them and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, really creative, really interested in arty type stuff. 
So I pursued that. I did some script writing courses. I did multimedia, studied web design, graphic design, these kinds of things. Worked in television, worked in design colleges, worked inside my brother's web design business, and then eventually kind of left all of that and moved to Melbourne and ended up doing this this NLP stuff. So may I ask what triggered the move to Melbourne? So I was seeing a guy at the time, we were living in Noosa and all of his friends and family were based here in Melbourne and all of mine were scattered across the globe. And Noosa is a very transient place. So uh, we would meet people that we finally gelled with and connected with and they'd just be there for a few months traveling and then they would leave. So we decided to kind of relocate to Melbourne where we would have like kind of a good community and that sort of thing. Could you explain what NLP is, just in case anyone's wondering out there? Yeah, it's a really good question. (laughs) It's a really, really good question. So NLP stands for Neuro Linguistic Programming, which is a terrible name. It's a really yawn kind of inspiring name for something that is completely the opposite. It's something that is so magical. It's all about patterns in human behavior. So it's all about patterns in the way that we think and the way that we feel, the way that we use our bodies. Uh, the way that we believe things, the way that we use our language, all these kinds of things as patterns in how we do things. And it's all about the, the structure and the nature of human experience. We kind of come from this premise that all human experience has a structure to it and it can be mapped and reproduced. So NLP is the detection of these patterns in human behavior and in living systems. And then the replication of these patterns or the utilization of these patterns for certain effects so in an essence and it kind of depends where you come across NLP what you think it is my lineage is very modeling centric which is all about kind of replicating those patterns but there are other schools of NLP that will emphasize different things so that's where things kind of get a little bit muddy Mm. Um, but when you kind of talk to the developers of NLP they will um, John Grinder in particular will really emphasize that this is about modeling it's about unpacking what somebody does inside that they don't even know that they do uh, that makes them get the results that they get that allows them to perform to a particular level or create a certain effect get a certain result could you give us like a real life example maybe something from your life or maybe someone that you've helped yep as to like a little story about how they've used NLP in their own life yeah sure so in my own life so I came across this NLP stuff I you know I did the practitioner master practitioner training which I was very fortunate to learn from an incredible mentor who was very modeling focused and so we learned how to model really really well at master prac and I wanted to become an NLP trainer so I took on an NLP trainer apprenticeship which I don't really feel will ever end it's one of those things that's kind of an endless journey but that involves modeling my mentor And so I spent every Thursday night, every Friday, Saturday and Sunday for nearly six years in the training room modelling from him, modelling what he does. So what does modelling mean? Do you mean that you're copying his words and his actions? Kind of, kind of. There's a little bit more to it than that. But what tends to happen is now when his students come into my training room and they see me doing my thing, and I'm very Amy about the way that I do things, there's, there's a lot of differences, but there's these times where they see James 
come out to play, so to speak. It's like I've just soaked up his strategies, his ways of doing things, his ways of storytelling, his ways of crafting metaphors to create change inside. There's lots and lots of things that he does as a trainer that I've just soaked up via this process of modeling. So that kind of... I guess I need a more practical example of what that would look like in someone's life. Like, do people tend to come to you with specific issues they need help with? Yeah. So how I would apply modeling, I guess, as a coach, for example, is I would start by modeling out the problem, if there was a problem. So it might be that somebody's experiencing anxiety, for example, and... The way that I approach things is that what you might call anxiety might be different for somebody else and how you create your anxiety might be different from how somebody else does. So I want to know how you create that. I want to model that out as like, what do you do inside to create that effect inside yourself? And then I can either introduce a model for doing things differently, or I can kind of break your model for doing that. So it just doesn't work anymore. So you can't do that problem anymore if that kind of makes sense is that yeah yeah this is just something I've noticed from what you've said already it seems like there's a lot of connections within your family and with your own life with NLP and technology and I'm wondering if it draws much from how a computer programmer would think yeah like writing code yeah 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 so all right a little bit of a brief history of NLP so if we go all the way back to like the 70s in California at a university so if you just get a bit of a sense of the vibe and the time of the 70s in California <laughs> back then and there was this guy Richard Bandler who was a uni student and he was a bit of a um you know sex drugs rock and roll kind of vibe and um, incredible mathematician incredible musician and very mathematically minded got that kind of computer minded stuff going on And back then, if somebody wanted to create a book, they would often transcribe a lecture or a seminar and turn that into a book. And this was like a really tedious job, a task. It involved, you know, listening to hours and hours and hours and hours of audio and kind of rewinding and writing that down and playing that back. And it wasn't a very well-paid job either. And so this is the kind of job that uni students do because they're kind of desperate for work and they're prepared to do these things. And there was a gestalt therapist called Fritz Perls who was getting incredible results with his people And he was also teaching what he thought he knew about what he was doing. And he asked Richard Bandler to transcribe some of his lectures. And so Richard starts listening to hours and hours and hours of this Fritz Perls guy. And what he found after like hundreds of hours of this was that he could do a pretty good Fritz Perls impression. And when he did a Fritz Perls impression, he could get the same kind of results with his people, with his clients that Fritz Perls was getting with his. This is the kind of results that Fritz Perls students couldn't get from the stuff that Fritz was teaching them. There was something else kind of going on there and it freaked him out a bit. It was just like, hang on, there's something going on here. Like, Am I channeling this guy? <laughs> yeah, like what's going on? And this is the story as I know it, by the way. There may be slight differences in there. But so he says to his friend Frank, you know, something weird's going on here. Do you want to like, come? you come listen to this stuff and replicate what I'm doing and see what happens. So Frank goes and listens to hours and hours and hours and hours of Fritz Perls and he finds that he can also do a pretty good Fritz Perls impression. And he's also able to get the same kind of results that Richard and Fritz are getting. 
and like I think something's going on here Uh, I don't know what it is but we need to find this out and so they went to a guy who was working at the university so this was John Grinder who was kind of like an ex-US Special Forces, almost CIA spy, come linguistics professor. So they go to John and they say, can you come and like check out what we're doing and see if you can notice any like, I don't know, patterns in what we're doing with our language or like what's going on here. So John says, yeah, sure. And he goes and he watches and he listens. And he said, yeah, well, you don't need the German accent, by the way. It's not required. (laughs) Um, Possibly a little bit offensive as well. (laughs) Uh, That's not required. There's absolutely patterns in the structure of your language, the way that you're using language that's creating these effects, that's allowing people to have insights and make changes and, and whatnot. And so what they had then was a model for how to do therapy and create therapeutic change the way that Fritz Perls does. And at that point, they the people that they had access to that were really good at stuff were all kind of therapists. And so they started applying what they'd been doing and unpacking what they'd been doing. And they ended up with a whole bunch of models for how to be good at therapy from all these different therapists, which is why people often think NLP is therapy because that's kind of where it was born and the, and the circumstances in which it was born. And then in the in the, like the 80s, the sales and marketing guys got wind of this whole modeling thing. And they're like, hang on a second, like the dollar signs just going ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. You're telling me that if I have a sales team and on my sales team, I've got an absolute gun, someone that just outperforms everybody on that team, in spite of the fact that they've all got the same industry knowledge and experience and skills, there's someone that's just kind of a freak. You're telling me we could unpack what that person does with this stuff and teach it to the whole team. And then I've got a whole team of sales guns and they're like, yep. And so it kind of took off in that field as well. And and now we've got models in like all different fields, you know, arts and sports performance and all these different things. But Richard did have that mathematical computer engineering type brain. And that's definitely kind of how he approaches NLP. My limited understanding of it, it, it is very much about sort of breaking down how people sort of process information, right? Yeah. And which senses are, are being used predominantly and then what they do with that and then how they output it, I guess. So yeah. it's sort of like a computer. As a side note in software engineering, NLP also stands for natural language processing, yes, which is a little bit confusing for me since I, when I'm reading something, I have to sort of, yeah. okay, which one is it? Yeah. Right. But yeah, no, that's, that's interesting. But I am curious though, what was it in particular that piqued your interest in NLP? Yeah. So I, um, have you ever found yourself like in a situation and you've just kind of wondered like, how the hell did I even get here? <laughs> Like, what am I I doing here? Um, I think this is something that's quite common to people, like, at different ages in their lives. And I was around about 30 years old. And I think a lot of people kind of take stock and go, what am I doing? What have I achieved? That sort of thing. And I was working in a shoe store at the time. And I'd been working there for about five years. And I had one of those moments. And, you know, like, quite creative background and everything. And at the same time, I also noticed that I was feeling quite anxious about some things. And the longer I stayed there, the less capable I felt and the smaller I felt. I was kind of living very small, even in terms of the radius in which I was operating. I wouldn't drive very far. I was like kind of living in this very, very small circumference and started to feel some anxiety and also started to 
develop a very unhealthy obsession with healthy eating and kind of shrinking myself. And I think I was out for breakfast with my partner at the time. And that was like a favorite pastime, like big foodie, love breakfast. Know you guys love big breakfasts. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And I was out for breakfast with him and I looked at the menu and I just went into complete overwhelm, just burst into tears and could not order anything. And all I felt comfortable and safe eating was something that was in my fridge at home that I knew exactly what was in it and exactly what it would do to my body and, and this kind of thing. And it was kind of in that moment that I I recognised, like we're at this beautiful place in Belgrave called Earthly Pleasures. It's this beautiful kind of old stone place, beautiful gardens. And here I was just like so focused on something that was just like I knew it was ridiculous and I knew it was unhealthy and just sucking the joy out of, you know, out of life. And we were also going to be going overseas on this amazing trip, uh, Southeast Asia with another couple. And I'd already started obsessing about what might be available in terms of food options over there. And, you know, God forbid I might get a little bit bigger while we're traveling, you know, it was really crazy when I think about it. So it was kind of that that motivated me to contact my mum. So my mum had learned some NLP. And so I knew that things could be different. I knew that amazing things were possible with this NLP stuff. So I rang up my mum and I said, do you know anyone in Melbourne that does this NLP stuff that might be able to help me sort this out? And she said, yeah, I've heard that like this guy is like the guy in Australia for NLP. And she gave me the phone number of James Sakalis. So I rang James up and he referred me to the lovely Lisa Drinkan, one of his students. And I went and had two sessions with her in which all of the anxiety was resolved. I was off and running, but she also nurtured some of those artistic, creative aspects of myself that I'd been neglecting. And as a result of that kind of set me on a path which... I ended up producing a whole bunch of surrealist artwork and running an exhibition, solo exhibition, raising money to go and work at an NGO over in Cambodia. Wow, that's quite a a result. Yeah, Yeah. so that was kind of the beginning. And then while I was traveling around Southeast Asia, which was a great holiday once I'd kind of let go of all that stuff that I just didn't need, I got a text message from my mum saying that she was coming down to Melbourne to do the intro NLP weekend with this James guy. Could she stay at my house and uh, did I want to go along? And at that point, like I didn't have any really solid outcomes, but... I was just literally following my interest and curiosity, but I also knew that I wasn't where I wanted to be, you know, like working in the shoe store was just not where I wanted to be. So went along to this weekend course and that was like game over for me. It was just like, this is my life now. Just, you know, discovered the magic and yeah, that was it. Your story just really brings to mind this Elizabeth Gilbert quote, which I'm probably going to get a little bit wrong, which is like a creative brain. It's like a border collie puppy. You've got to give it something to do because otherwise it's going to find something to yeah. do and you probably won't like it. Yeah, so absolutely. Like, do you think that your creative, amazing brain that we all have was just being so stifled by your, yeah, as described by you, like small existence. It was like going into food stuff. It was like finding all of these obsessive yeah. things because it just wasn't given enough stimulus. I think that's really common, actually, that the body kind of generates these symptoms um, as a signal to say, hey, you're not paying attention to something here. Something needs to be different. Something needs to be worked out. NLP, how would you say it could relate to something like meditation? Yeah, okay. So we actually use 
kind of meditative states sometimes in NLP. So there are flow states, for example, that we utilize in NLP. And there's one which is kind of like a downtime, what I would call like a downtime trance state, a downtime flow state where you bring all of your attention onto the inside and you've got none of your attention on the outside. And when people kind of go all the way on the inside, they have access to so much of their internal resources and there's communication can flow more freely between the body and the unconscious mind can come out to play. And so it's similar in in a sense to some kind of meditative states. So that's one of the ways that we kind of use that state inside NLP but how can NLP sort of come into meditation is that at an NLP practitioner course for example you learn lots of ways of guiding and facilitating somebody's internal experience Uh, you become very artful with your use of language and your state how you use your body and your breathing to really take people on an inner journey that can be a meaningful and often transformative experience so I think that's really useful for anyone who facilitates meditation to kind of develop this this artistry in the way that they facilitate something that I keep hearing or keep thinking about when I hear your words in yoga and yogic philosophy it's called svadhyaya which translates to mean self-study yep and so I can see how that's really been part of your journey that internal awareness and it almost seems like that process of svadhyaya of being really tuned into your own internal state and your workings of your own mind and your patterns of your thought is actually extended out to the people that you're working with as well so you have your perception of what I'm doing how I'm using my language how I'm using my words and also how is this landing with other people absolutely am I seeing that unfold yeah absolutely so it's all about you know a lot of the facilitation on my part as a trainer when I'm teaching this stuff at Prac is getting people to have this recognition that they're they're going on the journey you're not doing this thing to somebody else you're going on this journey with them you have to go there first you're you do things on the inside and you lead people on this journey yeah because when I heard your initial like how NLP began this guy just listening to lectures so he was able to take this very surface understanding of this person's words whereas this guy's students who'd been studying his work for years and years weren't able to replicate those results yeah so it almost seems like in some ways you can take quite a shallow script and apply that and get a result yep but hearing what you're saying now as well is this this whole deeper layer to it as well where it's not just using a script or using like a code yes where you use a computer code yeah it's also the subtle layers beneath that absolutely and you know that's one of the the challenges in the field of nlp right now is that, like I said, I was very fortunate to have had the training that I had and to start with somebody like James, who is just absolutely masterful and comes from like a lineage of masterful trainings, trainers. But predominantly in the field, there's a lot of kind of short form courses. And in order to run a short form course, you really have to be able to do things quickly. And if you want to be able to do things quickly, people frequently will give people scripts to use rather than give them the the patterns and principles inside what they're doing so they understand how things work how to create certain effects when things go off script (laughs) and that ability to like go into their own internal journeys exactly 
Yeah. Because I could see another flip side of the power of this practice is the ability to manipulate people. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's a common thing that comes up. I think we almost have a responsibility to learn this stuff so that we recognize the influence that we have every second that we're with another human being or an animal for that matter. I think people often have a very narrow perspective on what influence is and manipulation. People often think it's like mind control and these kinds of things. And there are people in the world who operate without ecology frames. So that can be a thing. But anyone who's ever tried to cheer their friend up you know, make someone feel better has set out with the intention to influence that person. And a lot of the time we're just kind of like moving through the world, engaging with people, not recognizing how the state that we're in, for example, is rubbing off on other people. Yeah, we're so wrapped up in our own internal stuff that that's all we're aware of. Yeah, you know, we've got this contagion stuff that happens and the, the effects of our language as well on other people. So for example, when I first started out coaching, Um, I had a bit of a niche back then and that was NLP for kids. And so parents would ring me up and say, oh, can you come and do some stuff with my kids? And kids are awesome. Kids have the most flexible brains. There's like no resistance there. You know, they change so incredibly quickly. They're not attached to anything. And so I would do this like beautiful kind of change work with these kids. What I very, very early on discovered was that I needed to do some pre-framing with the parents and some post-framing around not undoing the stuff that I had done (laughs) let's just say you know like just little things because you can use your language to shift things in time so I could talk about a problem as if it had been in the past I could talk about someone might say if we just kind of stick with the theme of anxiety someone might be talking about some anxiety that they'd been experiencing and I'm already noticing in my language I've just put that into the past so I could say oh so you're experiencing anxiety which kind of makes it a present time experience or I could say oh you have been or you had been experienced anxiety from time to time in the past and just using my language that way it's now something that happened in the past it's not something that's happening now it may not be something that's happening in the future it's kind of changing their experience of this thing and so I could do a whole bunch of change work and I could put this problem whatever it is it's sorted it's done it's something that used to happen that will no longer occur and then you know some well-intentioned parent or auntie or whoever that might be when that child maybe say they had a fear of I don't know heights or something like that they could in a protective way say oh you better not go up there remember you're always scared of that (laughs) you know and then they you know child with flexible brain goes oh yeah that's right I'm scared of this so there are certain things you can do to make things kind of sticky and hold them in place but you know there's so much that we do with our language that we just don't realize the effect that it has another example would be I did some phobia cure stuff had a client who had had multiple surgeries and was going in for another one and she'd had some bad experiences in the past and so she was quite fearful about this this upcoming surgery so we did a bit of work and I'm getting messages for days afterwards saying how she's like I can't believe how relaxed I am about this this is amazing and then again you know some friend of hers I think it was on the phone just started telling her horror stories about yeah. surgeries oh and my it, gosh you know and started yeah. to undo some of that stuff you know so I think we do actually have a responsibility to learn about the effect that we have on other people because mm. we you cannot not influence we're always influencing each other 
Hello, Ran here, just popping in to let you know about a very exciting event coming up soon. We are very excited to announce that Amy Bell, Amy who we've been listening to earlier, will be hosting a two-day workshop at our studio, Garden of Yoga. This happens on the 12th and 13th of October. She'll be sharing lots of great information about NLP and how you can use it to help with your teaching, yoga, meditation, anything like that. I'll definitely be there and I hope you can make it along as well. I'll leave a link in the show notes for that one on our website, podcast.flowartist.com. All right, that's enough talking about workshops. Let's get back to the conversation with Amy. That friend saying, like telling horror stories leading up to a surgery, it's actually amazing how often that happens. Like when you hear about someone who has a diagnosis and it's like people are trying to empathize. So they're like, oh, yeah, my friend got that diagnosis and they were dead six months later. It's just like that story helps nobody in this situation. (laughs) I think um, pregnancy is a big one as well. Oh, yeah. The birth horror stories. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. And I guess we've got to be real about this stuff, but it does seem like people are a lot more ready to share the horror stories than they are to share the stories of that birth that went really beautifully or that person who got that diagnosis, but they're doing great now. Yeah. That that negativity bias. Yeah. 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 Something else that's just come to my mind hearing about just the subtle effects that your language and your demeanor can have on other people that we're not aware of working in a cafe or any kind of food environment you see that so much yeah like i think when people are hungry it doesn't usually bring out the best in people people just want their coffee and sometimes like four or five of those just rude cranky people in a row just really brings down the energy of everyone working there and then someone will come in and they're just like a ray of sunshine and all like (laughs) shift everything yeah so it's one of the things that often I kind of think about when I'm guiding a meditation about how our own internal state really affects the way that we see the world and it changes the way that we interact with people around us. Because I think when we're one little individual, we feel insignificant sometimes, but it can really ripple out from us the way that we perceive ourselves inside, what we radiate Mm. outside, our interactions with other people affect their interactions with someone else. Absolutely. And so you can, you know, you can project positivity and you can project negativity. It's just about, yeah, being mindful of what's happening inside you and redirecting that if if possible, if necessary. And I guess this brings me to another thought, which is also something I see a lot in the yoga world, which is not always helpful. That kind of you have to be positive about everything, no matter how you're really feeling. And that is also that something that comes up when people maybe get a health diagnosis that they will only get well if they are positive all the time. It's just like another layer of pressure and expectation. And it must be something that you navigate with NLP because it sounds like a lot of what you do is about positive reframing of things that people might be going through. Yeah, it is. But also keeping it real. Yeah, exactly. And I think you need to pace people's experience. You've got to meet somebody where they are. You can't just go, somebody's just got, you know, really bad news. You can't just go, oh, cheer up, you know. Like you've got to meet them where they are and kind of lead them and pace them into a better place. And I think there's just because you can see a better way 
for somebody as well doesn't necessarily mean that that's their time to shift either or that that's something that's right for them uh, so I think that's something to be to be mindful of there also like you can't just be like just cheer up and stop stressing about that thing yeah exactly mm. exactly my mentor uses this great example sometimes when he's training about you've got somebody that's really really worked up about something like they're really really angry say you are uh, so you're working in a coffee shop, somebody comes in, their coffee order's wrong or whatever, and they come in and they go rah, ballistic at you and you go, calm down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? That's not going to have an effect. That's not going to calm them down. So no, it's going to make them more angry. Exactly. So, you know, you don't have to kind of match their state. You don't have to get angry, but you can match them. You can meet them where they are with that kind of level of energy and go, oh my God, yeah, I'm so sorry. And how about we, and you can just gradually pace them down yeah i can see how important that coffee was to you i'm gonna do everything i can to amend this situation exactly yeah we know that there's contraindications that apply to meditation i'm wondering if that's also true for nlp are there some people that perhaps just should stay away from it it's an interesting question should some people stay away from nlp i tend to think like generally that nlp makes everything better but i often like <laughs> add something to that which is except wankers <laughs> <laughs> but i think um if you have good nlp training mm-hmm. even if you're a wanker it's likely to um do you know nothing but good nothing but good And I think if you don't do as good NLP training, then there might be some things to watch out for there. Mm. So, I mean, I guess we've sort of covered the the fact that it can be used for manipulation. So I guess some people, if they're going, if they're a manipulative wanker, like you say, (laughs) we're an Australian podcast, so (laughs) we can use that word. But yeah, I guess uh, some people you might not necessarily like to be using it yeah. but I guess how can you tell <laughs> well you can you can so this, <laughs> the great thing about NLP is that you learn how to read people really well right. and so there's certain things in people's physiology and their language that are just flashing alarm bells and so myself and colleagues in my network we do have a filtering system And if we get an inquiry or somebody attends, maybe like this is why we run intro courses. This is a filtering process. We don't just let everybody into prac. And if somebody did make it into prac, we would know very early on to kind of ask them, move them on somewhere else. And so that's what we do. If we come across somebody like that, we'll either refer them to somewhere where we know they're not going to get very good NLP skills. Um. (laughs) Some wanker place. And if needed, you know, we might just kind of pass a message around to each other and right. just let them know that. But that would be very, very rare. Yeah. Very, yeah. very rare. When you described one of the practices, which was about withdrawing the senses, which made me think Pratyahara, another yogic sense withdrawal thing. Yeah. One of the contraindications for some meditation techniques is if someone is maybe already in a really deep depression or already very deep in their own heads, maybe Mm -hmm. already obsessive thinking patterns. And I could imagine, especially with NLP, maybe someone who has some mental illness issues where they already might feel like they control the universe Mm -hmm. or like the power of their thoughts is enacting change out in the world, which is definitely true on one level. But I know some people can really get into that storyline and it's a warning sign. Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, I haven't actually worked with that many people in that kind of space. But generally we operate from, we do not do anything, we do not begin process until you have resourceful NELPA, resourceful facilitator and resourceful client in front of you. So we're never going to be working with an unresourceful system. Like first step would be get this person resourceful in, and in a good space first. And that might not be via going all the way inside, depending what's going on, you're going to use kind of different things to get them there. But I haven't actually worked a lot in mental illness, that sort of thing. Yeah. Do they use NLP much in like addiction recovery programs? I think they do, yeah. I know some people who have specialised in that with their NLP skills can be a really... You know, it resource. seems like it would be useful. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. To change the topic a little bit, perhaps you could tell us about Green Gecko and how you became involved with that. Yeah, <laughs> Green Gecko. So this trip that I went on, I went on a trip around Southeast Asia with a partner at the time and a couple. And it was a pretty full on trip once we got to Cambodia. We went into Phnom Penh and we started learning about the history of Cambodia and the genocide and Khmer Rouge. And we booked a, a tour of the killing fields which was, you know, we got the audio headset. So you kind of just walk around this site and, you know, you're hearing all of the the history of the different points on this site. And it was incredibly deep and disturbing, moving experience. And I remember there's a, there's a tree on that site, which is where they used to bash babies' heads. Oh, my God. To death. And so that stays with you. That's not something you forget in a hurry. And I think after we left that tour, I don't think we spoke for like a day or two after that. And we went into town one night and there were a whole bunch of kind of pool tables outside this bar and a lot of women just kind of hanging around, you know, waiting for their next customer. There was a laneway with a whole bunch of roller shutter doors and their children just hanging around selling snake eggs in their pajamas. And every now and then a woman would kind of leave with a man and go inside one of those roller doors. And you just knew sometimes it was going to be those kids that were going into those roller doors. And you don't forget that either. And so those, those were quite big and impactful experiences in Phnom Penh. And then we travelled down to Siem Reap and I'd heard about this NGO Green Gecko Project, I think via my mum. And she said, I think they run tours there, you should go check them out. So I went there and I was just blown away. We did a little bit of a, a visitor tour and we learned about how the NGO works. It's just absolutely incredible. It was started by an Australian lady named Tanya. She was working in other orphanages in Siem Reap and she got kicked out because she was quite vocal about things that were going down that were just not okay. So things like having the children perform every night to raise money for the orphanage or even having visitors from outside travelers come and say, I'm taking this child out for the day. Things that were just not okay and completely inappropriate. And so she got kicked out of there and she just started feeding the kids on the streets and then she started teaching them. And then she started, if they came along to one lesson, then they had to come along to every lesson. So she kind of enforced this rule and just like developed this school. And then there were some, some kind of political figures coming to town and the police started rounding up all the street kids in CM Reap and arresting them and locking them up. And she found out about this and she used this to her advantage and she said, release them into my care. I'll make sure they're not on the streets. And they did. And they said, you know, if they're back on the streets, we're going to lock them up. You get kind of one shot. 
And so that was kind of the birth of Green Gecko. And so she just started teaching them. There's like, well, there was 72 kids there from age six up to about 22 when I was there. And uh, not only do they provide care for these kids and school them and, and all of these things, but they also work with the families and there's a lot of gambling and alcohol addiction type stuff happening. So they like a lot of intergenerational trauma. Exactly, exactly. So they work with the whole community. Tanya's partner, Rem, is a social worker. They're amazing. They're called Mum and Dad at, the, at Green Gecko. The kids are amazing. So when I met them and I, and I saw what a great place it was, I just felt like I need to come back and do something. And so I was a designer at the time, so I came back and I did taught them logo design and computer code. It was an incredible experience. The kids there, they're just amazing. Like the things that they're going on to do now, the opportunities that they have, just mind blowing. And, you know, everything's kind of come full circle. They've started, the kids have started their own charity called Gecko Action. So they have a little tuk-tuk with a barbecue and they go around and they sell sausage sizzle and drinks and things. They raise money. They buy books and toothbrushes. They go into other villages and teach kids about dental hygiene and these kinds of things. They spend their weekends just picking up rubbish around the town. They're just amazing, incredible experience. You, I think earlier mentioned that you did a big art exhibition. To I did. Raise I wouldn't call it big. It was, it was kind of little. <laughs> <laughs> um, it did quite well financially, which was great because it allowed me to go and volunteer in Cambodia and raise a bit of money for Green Gecko as well. Uh, so that was all surrealist artwork, which when I first started learning NLP and I int- got introduced to hypnosis and started to kind of think about unconscious minds and what's possible when we kind of go into these altered states. Being an artist, I went home, tranced myself out, and I just had a big art pad in front of me and I just closed my eyes and drew with my eyes closed. And I set the intention before I kind of went into this altered state to draw an elephant. And when I came out of this altered state, there was a mother elephant head with a baby elephant tucked underneath her ear in a style that I could never consciously do. It was like way better than anything I could, you know, (laughs) consciously set out to do. And it just blew my mind and then kind of set me off on this whole kind of surrealist theme where I would... You know that moment kind of when you're drifting off to sleep and everything kind of gets a little bit kind of melty, like the waking world is blending with this kind of dream world. Everything's kind of not as fixed as it would normally be. And I would became kind of aware of these visions that I would have as I was drifting off to sleep. And so I would freeze in that moment and go, remember this. And then I would turn that into an artwork. So I have drawings of like a camel that's also a jellyfish and a zebra that's like a skin rug that's got like a proper zebra head that's alive, you know, like crabs with these parrot claw things, all kinds of surrealist stuff that came out of that. It does seem like those kind of NLP techniques, like I know a lot of surrealists use that hypnagogic state that state between yeah. being awake and being mm. asleep i think i think it was dali but um he had this special chair mm. and like a special spoon that he'd hold in his hand i didn't know that if he fell asleep too much he'd drop the spoon yeah and so okay start again so it's like yeah kind of settling into that like not awake not asleep yeah. stage and i know as well quite a few artists and performance artists also use that technique of just like getting your brain into gear and unconscious drawing is one that works for a lot of people yeah it's a really interesting process and you know I think the biggest challenge for me there 
is not demanding that, you know, unconscious mind comes out to play because I've experimented with kind of that unconscious drawing, automatic drawing quite a bit and also some automatic writing. And sometimes, you know, you sit down, you do it and magic comes out. And other times it's just like scribble. It's just noise. There's just nothing there. And so like being okay with that and being okay for there to be times when magic comes out and times like you just can't force it. It's interesting as well, the way that different people respond to like deadlines and pressure because for some people it's like the only thing that will like get their ass in gear and motivate them and then other people that's the thing that kills them creatively yeah yeah is this something you could work with with NLP yeah absolutely so if somebody was not responding resourcefully to a deadline there's lots of things that you can do you can for example because people represent things inside their mind and also metaphorically in space And so sometimes uh, when somebody's imagining a deadline, they've also got an imaginary timeline in front of them and the deadline is really close to their face when they think about it. And so sometimes just kind of moving it out along this imaginary timeline can give them a sense of, oh, that's better, even though it's the same date, but you've just created this sense of space in so their like mind. So like maybe rather than measuring it, like, oh, it's only a week away, kind of going, no, it's a whole seven days away and that's a whole 60 hours of yeah, work time Yeah, away. it has that kind of effect. And then, you know, sometimes if you moved it too far, then that wouldn't be sufficiently motivating for them. So it's just about finding, you know, where's that optimal space that's going to give them enough motivation to get started with it, but for it not to be overwhelming. Would you like to talk about the intersection between meditation and technology? I know you're doing stuff with the Muse headband and heart math and that type of thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm really curious about that because I, I don't know if you know, but a while back I started the Consciousness Hacking Melbourne yeah. group and that's now defunct. But, um, <laughs> but well, the Facebook group lives on. Yeah, it, does. Interested. <laughs> it does, but it is something I'm really interested in. So we've got a couple of different things there. So there are devices now for giving you biofeedback about what's happening in your body. One of those things is neurofeedback. Neurofeedback is something that will give you feedback about what's happening in your brain in terms of your brain waves. And you can use neurofeedback training to do a little bit like what we do in NLP, but via technology, where you can train something in unconsciously with feedback. So a friend of mine was studying neurofeedback and asked for guinea pigs and I'm super curious and into this stuff. So I was like, yes, play with my brain. (laughs) And so one of the first things I did was she hooked me up to all of these kind of wires on my head and I did something called an alpha theta crossover training where I would have some audio playing in my ears and she would be rewarding particular brain waves and inhibiting other brain waves on her computer and if my brain started so I'm imagining like an electric shock all you hear is audio you know the feedback comes in terms of audio so if my brain was moving in a useful direction the direction that she was rewarding then I might hear bings for example or I might hear like a stream that kind of thing Um, And if my brain kind of went in a different direction, I might hear bongs or these kinds of things. But I didn't actually know which sounds were which or what was being rewarded, anything. All I had to do was just lay down, put these headphones on and just listen and let my brain do its thing unconsciously. And I did. I entered this um, incredible alpha theta crossover state where, um, yeah, just lots and lots of visual imagery and experiences happening and incredibly relaxing. And uh, I came back another time and she said, you know, we can do this stuff with video. 
was like, oh, that's cool. She's like, I've got a whole lot of videos. You can just pick whatever you want to watch. And so we we played with training in a more kind of focused state with that one. And so because we're doing video and I'm sitting in this chair and she's got all these wires hooked up to my brain, I picked the matrix. (laughs) (laughs) And so anytime my brain was doing what it was being rewarded for, I could see the movie really clearly. And anytime my brain was moving in a less than useful direction, the image would go really dark. And so my brain was really working to keep that image ah. nice and clear because it wanted to watch that. I wanted to watch the movie. And I did notice a massive change in my state for the next probably about 48 hours. It was super, super sharp, much more clarity uh, in my thinking and my kind of headspace. Uh, so that's kind of what neurofeedback is in a sense. And so there's kind of accessible devices now. The stuff that my friend was playing with, that's like tens of thousands of dollars of equipment and software. But we've got the Muse meditation headset now, which is a great kind of entry level neurofeedback device, which trains people into better quality meditative states. Now, when I say better quality meditative states, I think there's probably lots of good quality meditative states and I don't know exactly what kind of meditative state they're focusing on. Yeah, it seems like quite a, I want to say like entry level or base level. It seems like the concentration state because when you're using the muse, you need to count... Right. Well, you don't have to. But there's one they sort of... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it is an option. So they kind of take you through some basic stuff like breathing, what happens when you focus on your breath, what happens when you do this. They've got a few guided meditations. Um, But you can also just do it without without anything. And again, you just... tried that because I found it annoying because I'm like, oh, I feel like you're actually doing a less beneficial meditation because I have to do this counting thing that's taking a lot of focus. Yeah, just do your usual thing. Yeah, I mean, I try... I tried it listening to binaural beats yes. while I did it, and that was you could see the lines graphed out. Just yeah, that was a straight line. Folks. It runs in the zone. <laughs> we um, we played with it in the training room as well. So I had my mentor. Um, he's got um, some triggers, I guess you would say. Uh, set up in advance that kind of send me into a trance state and so he was kind of walking towards me from the front of the training room and I had the muse headset on and he just fired one of these triggers and I went into this state and then we looked at the data and the brainwave had just gone like straight down and gone into this straight line across the bottom just gone straight all the way down into this deep trance which was pretty cool. One thing I found with their stuff as well is when your thoughts were getting or thought patterns were getting a bit more disturbed to have the the stormy noises. Yeah. I found that actually spiraled me off into... Yeah, it's like oh, an extra no. challenging thing, right? Because mm. if you've got that head noise on, adding noise you think would kind of exacerbate it. Mm. Yeah. But no, overall, I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, and when I came across that technology I was in a space where I wasn't meditating I was somebody who needed to learn how to meditate I wanted to be you know active and doing stuff I was doing stuff with my brain a lot just you know constantly reading or training or whatever I just couldn't slow down and so for me it was really useful I noticed you know just getting that feedback as well about where you're at I noticed that I could see in the data that when I practiced meditation every single day the quality of my meditations went up like the the amount of minutes of calm per session was much higher and if I skipped a couple of days that would drop really quickly Uh, and so I think for somebody who's new to meditation it can be a good little gateway you know it's a bit fun you've got a bit of tech you've got this data you can't deny the feedback that you're Mm -hmm. getting you can't deny that it's actually having an effect 
And then, you know, I've got my own meditation practice now, so I don't use it so much. But I think it's really helpful for think, creating that gateway. I think as well, it's so perfect for people who aren't as into the esoteric, more traditional. Yeah. It's not necessarily religious, but if you don't do it, you might be yeah. turned off by that with yeah. like incense and chimes and Buddha statues. Yeah. But people who are into tech and into stats <laughs> and like into like computer games and stuff yeah well, they gamified it quite nicely yeah. because you get the bird sounds you oh this many birds came and visit and then oh i better come back tomorrow and, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. hilarious i did get into several meditation competitions with friends and we were uh, trying so many different meditations <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) And I understand you're doing some work or you have done some work with the Muse Headband and Teens. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah. So I run this Thrive program. I run it for adults and I run a similar one for teens, which is all about high performance, resilience and well-being and NLP applications specifically for developing those things, increasing those things. So because the thing about NLP is like when most people learn it, they go, oh my God, I wish I had learned this when I was a kid or I wish this was in schools. And so while teens aren't the focus of my work, I did want to offer something for those guys. And so, yeah, I I run this program and they absolutely love the biohacking. They really, really get into it. They had some really kind of freaky experiences with the meditating. And we also use the heart math technology as well, where they, they get feedback about their nervous system and the coherence in their nervous system, how relaxed they are, whether they're in stress response or whether in they're more in the rest and digest kind of response, the parasympathetic, sympathetic. And we experimented with that. And the great thing about getting the feedback is it's like proof. <laughs> so I would have them imagine different things in their mind while they're hooked up to this tech where, you know, imagine a future where you don't have many options. You, you're stuck in the one job. You've got no possibilities. You're really down on yourself, really creating this dark future. And they could see that they'd gone into stress response on this I device. I was going into stress response. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then, because I don't want to leave you there, and then imagine a future where, you know, everything's bright and, you know, it's full of possibility and you can do you know meaningful things with your life and you're surrounded by good people and you've got this sense of gratitude and everything's good you're feeling better now right? (laughs) and they would see that they've gone into relaxation and so I think they're really valuable for a, a kind of conscious convincer for people like we we know that movement that breathing that exercise that nutrition that all of these things are good for us and it's one thing to know that And it's another thing for a lot of people to see that in stats or in an app as feedback. You can't deny that you have incredible influence over your own health and well-being and stress and relaxation and state of mind. It's all there in the biofeedback. I think as well, the challenge for a lot of people is coming down to a practice of self-love and acknowledging that they are worthy of being treated well. They're worthy of being fed beautiful, nutritious food and taking time to exercise and taking time to relax. Yeah. And I think sometimes, you know, because there's, there can be a really big difference in, in those kind of states. So when you are well nourished and when you do feel good, it's kind of easier to keep making those healthy choices. Yeah, you're choices. like, oh, I'll go for a walk. I'm full yeah. of energy. Yeah. Yeah. And when you're not in that space, maybe you're a bit stressed or you're overwhelmed, even though like you should go and meditate, that would do you good. There's a big gap between those states. And I think that's kind of where the challenge is. 
perhaps you'd like to talk about your upcoming guiding and inner journeys workshop that will be happening here. Yeah, that sounds good. (laughs) So it's all about, you know, we sort of touched on some of this stuff, but it's all about NLP hypnosis skills for helping people to deepen their own meditation practice and also to facilitate and guide the internal experience of others so there'll be a lot to do with using your your body and your state and your breathing your physiology and your language to artfully kind of facilitate these experiences to help people to access um, internal resources Um, help people to kind of calibrate to read where the group is at where individuals are at to connect more deeply with groups that you might be facilitating and to know you know like where if you're facilitating a group with a meditation know who's kind of on their way who doesn't need a lot of kind of work right now and who might be struggling a little bit and how to kind of tap into them and and get them into a good space so would this be good for yoga? Like it sounds like it'd be great for yoga teachers. Yeah. Would this be useful as well for people who just want to use NLP in their own lives? Yeah, absolutely. This stuff has like limitless applications. Like if you can facilitate and guide somebody's internal journey in a meditation context, you can also do this to help your kids go to sleep. You can also do this, you know, with a friend who might be having a hard time with something and you want to lead them into a different state. And because it's just states, if you can lead somebody into a meditative state you can lead them into any kind of state you know this is great foundation skill for you know even in storytelling for example you want to take people on an emotional journey uh, so it has limitless applications beautiful if you could distill everything you've learned and everything that you teach into one core essence and I know this is a big question (laughs) what do you think that one thing would be I love this question because at first hearing it, it sounds like, oh my God, like how could I possibly answer that? But I can, I can answer that because there's something called the three legs of NLP and three legs of NLP is about this. It's about, it's kind of like a a no fail recipe for success, which is take some kind of action, know what you want, know, have some kind of outcome and take some action towards having that happen and then pay attention to the feedback notice what's happening is what you're doing working is what you're doing not working if what you're doing is working keep going if what you're doing is not working do something different like anything different at that point is going to have a greater chance of getting you in the right direction and then you just keep doing something pay attention to the feedback do something different so many people will do things like try to you know, they want something, they have some kind of outcome, but they try to figure something, they figure it all out in advance before they actually take any action. They never get any feedback, which can kind of slow the process down. And a lot of people just don't take any action ever. They just kind of sit there, not moving, not creating any kind of difference. A lot of people don't pay attention to the feedback. They know something doesn't work and they just keep doing just it. Just do it harder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do it Why harder. Is this exactly. Mm-hmm. You know? And I so think I've done all of those things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I think this is a human condition thing we're talking about. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but I think that's just like a, a brilliant strategy from, from NLP that is just applicable everywhere with anything you want in your life. Do something, pay attention to the feedback. If it's not working, do something different. Beautiful. Yeah, great strategy. Yeah. Thank you. All Thank you so much for speaking with us today. My pleasure. I'm so glad you're coming back for a workshop because I've got so many more questions. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. Thanks for having me. 
All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Amy. And this is one of those episodes that's a little bit outside of our normal type of wheelhouse, I guess, about yoga or meditation. And I always wonder how our audience, that's you guys, will respond to these episodes. But I hope you enjoyed it. I had fun during the conversation. And I think Amy has a lot of good, good stuff to share. But I'd like to put the question to you. Did you enjoy the episode? Do you like our detours into different modalities? You can email us via podcast at flowartist.com or let us know via Facebook or Twitter. Just search for Flow Artist Podcast. We would love to hear from you. All right, so on to our next episode. In our next episode, we feature a conversation with Dr. Scott Lyons. Scott is a clinical psychologist, osteopath, and mind-body medicine practitioner who specializes in therapies for infants, youth, and adults. Now, Scott was also the co-creator of Embodied Flow along with Tara Judow, so we were super excited to get the chance to have a conversation with him. Look out for that episode in a fortnight. Our theme song is Baby Robots by Ghost Soul and is used with permission. Go get his music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com. Once again, thank you so very much for listening. We really appreciate you spending your time with Joe and myself. Aroha nui. Big, big love. <laughs>